think uh, this has been one of the longest Fourth of July celebrations ever. I don't know about you guys, but I mean, you know, Sunday night we were in our backyard and people were lighting off fireworks. Saturday, went to some friends' house, they were lighting off fireworks. Sunday, then Monday, I think we had some at our house. And then Tuesday, I'm thinking, man, four days worth of Fourth of July. But, uh, but now we're here and praise the Lord and we're back in God's Word. So Isaiah chapter 45, let's pray before we begin. Father, we thank you for just this opportunity, Lord, that you've given to us, Lord, to be in your word this evening and to spend time in this sweet fellowship and together, Lord, and worship together, Lord. We, uh, Lord, we thank you for just being in that place of hearing from you, God, and knowing that your word is there to speak to our hearts and to give us not only understanding, Lord, but application, Lord. We look at the the uh, travels and the, the struggles and the things that the, your children of Israel went through, Lord, and we can apply these truths to our lives, Lord, and, and learn from them. And so we thank you for your word. We thank you for this uh, book of Isaiah, Lord, and the things that we learn from that. And, and so now, Lord, as we uh, dig in tonight, Lord, we just pray your blessing upon our time. Lord, I want to lift up uh, Gabe as he's downstairs teaching the youth. Speak to him, Lord God. Touch these kids that, uh, uh, Lord, even... Uh, them where they would just have this this desire lord to to please you lord and to live for you and, and to know your word and so bless our time together lord we thank you for it in jesus name we pray amen now we've seen uh, we've been seeing that isaiah has been recording the words of the lord and we have seen that the lord has been coming against those that worship idols and he's becoming coming against the idols themselves in chapter 44, the Lord pointed out the folly of idol worship. Remember, we looked at you, you take a tree and you, you cut it down and you warm yourself by the fire from the wood from that tree that you cut down. And then you, you bake your food with the wood from the fire, you know, from the, from the tree that you cut down. And then what you have left over, you make an idol out of it. And then you bow down to it and worship it and say, oh, this is my God. God's going, do, you, do you see what you're doing? See how dumb that is? Just point it out. And the Lord has been challenging these false gods by saying, well, listen, let your, your gods predict the future and, and have it come to pass. Let your gods do something, anything. But they don't. They just stand there. And obviously they can't. But our God can. And so we looked at briefly at the end of chapter 44 how the Lord predicted that there would be coming of a man named Cyrus, the king of Persia, who would eventually conquer Babylon and, and, and where the Jews would be eventually taken into captivity. Now, at the time of writing this, you know, we're, it's almost 150 to 200 years before this event. The Jews are still in their kingdom. They're still in, in uh, the kingdom of Judah, in their land, and there was no captivity going on uh, here. And the Lord is saying, well, there's going to come a time when I will use a man named Cyrus to bring you back into the land. Bring us back? What do you mean, bring us back? You know, we're in our land. It'd be like the Lord saying to you or I tonight, I'm going to use a man named Cyrus to free you from the Greene County Jail. <laughs> Wait a minute. Uh, well, no, no. <laughs> don't want that, you know. I don't think any of us would want to. Yet, God is showing His people that He's a God of the past, the present, and the future. And He can tell them things are going to happen long before they happen. Because of their idolatry and because of their turning their back on God, he was going to judge them. I and mean, they would be taken into captivity by the Babylonians, but they would learn their lesson. You know, to this day, that they, you know, if anything is true of the Jewish people, that they don't give in to idolatry anymore. 
And the good news here that God would set them free. And he wants them to know about it long before it happens. You see, in the midst of some calamity that may come our way, our God is there to see us through. And he's given us his word to give us hope. And that's what we see in our text this evening. So we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 45. We read in verses 1 through 6. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him, and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors, so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you, and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze, and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness, and the hidden riches of secret places, that you may know that I, the Lord who call you by name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to the setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. See, the Lord is describing here what he's going to do with this man named Cyrus as he would use him to conquer Babylon and, and set free his people, the Jewish people. Now, we know from history that, that the Babylonians did indeed take uh, captive the, the Jews there from Judah. Now, this Babylon city, it was very impressive. Just the walls alone that surrounded the city, they were considered to be unconquerable. They were 300 feet high. And 80 feet thick. I mean, that's huge. Think about Hammond's Tower. I looked it up this afternoon. Hammond's Tower in downtown Springfield is 268 feet high. So the Babylonian Babylonian wall was was, uh, 32 feet higher than that. 300 feet high. The width of the wall wall was 80 feet wide. Now, the average car lane is about 12 feet wide. So these walls were big enough to have six cars drive right next to it, side by side on this 300-foot high wall. On top of that, it was 15 miles long. It surrounded the city of, of Babylon, so it, it went on all sides. Then surrounding the wall at its base was this, this moat, and there was one entrance where, where the Euphrates River would flow into it, and then on into the city itself. Then on either side of the Euphrates River going into it, they had walls there as well, and so virtually impossible to climb over the walls to get into this city. But, then here comes a Persian by the name of Cyrus. Cyrus was determined not only, uh, determined that the only way to control that part of the world would be to destroy Babylon, so he launches this ingenious siege against the city. Now at the same time, when he's getting ready to conquer Babylon, we have a, a Babylon's king, Bel- Belshazzar, called his princes and his lords together for this party. You know, maybe they were just, you know, rejoicing over how strong they thought they were. You know, we're unconquerable. Let's throw a party. Who cares? You know, maybe they were mocking the Persians and saying, oh, you guys can't ever, uh, you know, get through to us. But either way, they threw a party and they were unaware about what was going to happen. And what had happened is Cyrus had diverted the Euphrates River several miles upstream in order to use the dry riverbed as a path under, you know, under the city wall. I mean, it's ingenious. So they just walk right in and conquer. They didn't have to try to figure out how to climb over this huge wall. Just ride up the river and walk on through. You see, at the very moment this mission by the king of Persia Cyrus was launched, there was a hand that was raised on the wall of Belshazzar's palace where they had been partying using the, the sacred vessels of the Lord. Suddenly this, this hand appeared and began, began writing on the wall, Mini, Mini, Tekel, Eupharsin. When they called the Daniel the prophet, and oh, what does this mean? What's going on here? 
Daniel, you know, uh, interpreted and said, You have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. And just then Cyrus and his men entered the city, and Babylon, along with their vast treasures, fell exactly as Isaiah prophesied some, some 150, 200 years earlier. In fact, look at verse 1. God says, I will lose the armor of kings to open before him the double doors. Doors were open, doors were wide open for him to go into. Verse 3, I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places. He gained tremendous, the tremendous wealth from the Babylonian Empire. Again, I love it. Some 150, 200 years earlier, the Lord says, I've got a servant. I'm going to use him. His name's Cyrus. Listen, it's one thing to predict that a nation would be conquered long before it happens. But what are the chances of someone being able to predict the exact name of the conqueror and the manner in which the nation would be conquered? But it doesn't end then. Uh, There, it doesn't stop there. If you jump down to verse 13 for a moment, you see that it says in verse 13, I have raised him up in righteousness... And I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city and let my exiles go free. Not for price nor reward, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, Isaiah is prophesying that Cyrus would allow the Jewish captives to return to their homeland and rebuild Jerusalem without demanding any price or reward from them in return. I mean, that was unheard of as well. I mean, if, you, if, if you're going to set someone back and then go back into the land, it's, well, you need to give us money, you need to pay, and then we'll let you go. Here, here the Lord... Or, uh, Isaiah prophesies, he's going to let him go without wanting anything in return. And that's exactly what happened. Then I love that the Lord brags a little bit in verses 3 and 4 about his ability to call out Cyrus by name. He says in verse 3, that you may know that I, the Lord who call you by your name, he says, I even I called you by your name, I have named you though you have not known me. I love that. I'm giving you a name, I'm telling you what you're going to do, even though you don't know me, even though you're not Jewish. Even though you're not one of mine, you know, I'm going to use you anyway. He goes on in verse 6. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to the setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. God is saying, listen, wake up. There's none besides me. I am the Lord and there's no other. Basically, there is no way that this could be written except by divine inspiration of God. No way could Isaiah know that this man named Cyrus would come on the scene. No way could, could uh, Isaiah call out this guy by his name except God who dwells outside of time could do this. It's only God. And to have it come about with 100% accuracy. The eternal God declaring uh, things before they happen that we might know that he is God when we see them happen. That's what he's saying here. Now we know God's word has many, many, many more prophecies that, that he's laid out in his word concerning his return, concerning his church, the last days, the Jewish people. We know he's called out a, a man, you know, the Antichrist, speaking of the time of terrible tribulation, that is going to, going to come upon the earth, the removal of the church and the rapture of the church before it happened. I mean, there's so much prophecy that God has given to us. Why? To give us hope, assurance that we have a great God that loves us and is going to take care of us. Now look at verse 7. He goes on. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now, you may have a version of the Bible that in verse 7 that God says, I create evil instead of calamity. I think it's in the Old King James Version. That's an unfortunate translation. First of all, God does not create evil, but calamity for those who refuse to honor him. Secondly, God does not create moral even in the sense of bringing it forth into our lives. We bring it forth. James chapter 1, verse 13 through 15 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. 
But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And yet, Cyrus and the Persians would find peace and Babylon would find calamity. But God does not create the evil here. And yet, sadly, what we see today is people blaming God for their sin. Claiming, oh, God tempted me and, and God made me like this. You know, the homosexual might say, well, how could this be wrong? God made me like this. I, I was born a homosexual. Or the alcoholic may say, well, God knows my weaknesses, the sickness I have, and if he didn't want me to drink, then I wouldn't find a bar when I'm driving around at night looking for a bar. You know, or, or the couple living in an adulterous relationship and saying, this can't be wrong, I prayed about it, and the reality is, God brought us together. That's all garbage. It's garbage. It's a lie of the devil. You gave in to that temptation and bought his lie. And there are those who don't know the scriptures. They have not read what James said, that it's impossible for God to tempt us with evil. But they'll still argue, hey, if God created everything like you Christians say he did, then it just stands to reason that, that he created this impulse in me to do evil, and he, he must have created evil. No. How do you respond to something like that? I found this illustration I thought was a pretty good answer. It's this university professor, and he challenged his students with this question. He said, did God create everything that exists? A student replied, yes, he did. The professor then asked, uh, God created everything. Yes, sir, the student replied. The professor answered, if God created everything, then God created evil, since evil exists, and according to the principle that our works define who we are, then God is evil. And the professor was quite pleased with himself and boasted to the students that he has proven once more that the Christian faith was a myth. Well, another student raised his hand and said, can I ask you a question, professor? Of course, replied the professor. The student stood up and asked, Professor, does cold exist? The professor replied, Of course it exists. Have you never been cold? The students chuckled at the young man's question. The young man replied, In fact, sir, cold does not exist. According to the laws of physics, what we consider cold is, is in reality the absence of heat. Every body or object is susceptible to study when it has a, trans, when it has a transmit energy and heat is what makes a body or matter have or transmit energy. Absolute zero, negative 460 degrees Fahrenheit, is a total absence of heat. Cold does not exist. We have created this word to describe how we feel if we have no heat. The student continued, Professor, does darkness exist? The professor responded, Of course it does. The student replied, Once again, you are wrong, sir. Darkness does not exist either. Darkness is, the reality, is, is in reality the absence of light. Light we can study, but not darkness. In fact, we can use Newton's prisms to break white light into many colors and study the various wavelengths of each color. You cannot measure darkness. A simple ray of light can break into a world of darkness and illuminate it. How can you know how dark a certain space is? You measure the amount of light present. Isn't this correct? Darkness is a term used by man to describe what happens when there is no light present. Finally, the young man asked the professor, Sir, does evil exist? Now uncertain, the professor responded, of course, as I've already said, we see it every day. It is in the daily example of man's inhumanity to man. It is in the multitude of crime and violence everywhere in the world. These manifestations are nothing else but evil. To this, the student replied, evil does not exist, sir, or at least it does not exist unto itself. Evil is simply the absence of God. It is just like darkness and cold, a word that man has created to describe the absence of God. 
God did not create evil. Evil is a result of what happens when man does not have God's love present in his heart. And it's like the cold that comes when there is no heat or the darkness that comes when there is no light. And the professor sat down. I think that explains it pretty well. You know, God did not create evil. It's a result of man's sinful heart and a heart in rejection of a loving God. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't judge people or nations. He does. But that judgment, that calamity that, that comes away is a result of that person or that nation's actions. And God, being a righteous judge, is just acting upon what they have done. Reaping what they've sowed. And, and, and again, like Babylon, the calamity that came upon them was because of how they treated the Jews. Uh, and, and, you know, the calamity was coming to them. And, and the peace that the Persians had and how they blessed the Jews. It's because of that. See, God is sovereign. He's holy and just. He does what is right. It's perfect. It's fair. We should never forget that. Verse 8. The Lord says, Rain down you heavens from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open, let them bring forth salvation, and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. See, as we read through the next you know, four or five verses, we get the idea that Isaiah's prophecy about Cyrus being the deliverer not going to sit very well with the Jews. They're not going to like that. Because when they, even though they didn't know who Cyrus would be specifically, they, they did know that Isaiah was claiming that this man who wasn't a Jewish person, God was going to raise up and empower him to shepherd them, them, so to speak. Basically, God was saying here in verse 8 that he can produce whatever he wants from wherever he wants, whether righteousness drips down from heaven or comes from, up from the earth, God can bring it forth. Man, if God can speak through Balaam's donkey, I mean, he can certainly use a, a pagan heathen king. I mean, he's a creator of all things. And, and so woe to the man or his people who, who may think otherwise. He goes on, look at verses 9 through 12. He says that. Woe to him who strives with his maker. Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or shall your handiwork say he has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, what are you begetting? Or to the woman, what have you brought forth? Thus said the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and his maker, ask me of things to come concerning my sons, and concerning the work of my hands you command me. I made the earth and created man on it. I, my hand, stretch out the heavens, and all their hosts I have commanded. I love the way the Lord shows us the foolishness of arguing with him, the foolishness of arguing with God. He says in verse 9, Woe to him who strives with his maker. And he says, does a, a clay pot argue with its maker? Does a lump of clay argue with, with the potter? You know, you got the lump of clay on the, on the table and it's spinning around and the potter's getting ready to shape and he begins to mold the clay and suddenly the clay, you know, speaks up and says, hey, stop it, you're doing it all wrong. I want to be a cup. I don't want to be a bowl. Excuse me? I mean, if I was a potter, I'd say, you're an ashtray. <laughs> you know, squish him down. See, the, the, the clay has no power over its own destiny. It's in the hand of the potter what that clay is going to be. The same way we really have no power over our destiny. Our lives are as clay in God's hand. He has the capacity to form us into whatever He wants. And the Lord here takes it a step further and basically says how terrible it would be if a newborn baby said to its father or mother, Why was I born like this? Why would you make me this way? What did you do in bringing me into this world? Arguing with God, striving with God. Why on earth would a man strive with God? Well, because they have a wrong concept of God. That's why. That's the only reason I can think of why, why a man would strive with God, because there's a wrong concept of God. If you had a, a true concept of God, you wouldn't want to strive with Him because you know 
that what God has for your life is the very, very best thing possible for you. The very best thing. We know Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. For I know the thoughts I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Psalm one thirty nine fourteen. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. Listen, God doesn't make junk. Okay. We, we, we may not always understand why He's made us like we are, but we need to know that He loves us and that His purposes are for our good. Helen Keller, we know, was deaf and blind from an incurable childhood disease, and Anne Sullivan uh, taught her to read through her senses of touch and smell and, and taste. At the end of her autobiography, Helen Keller says this, and it's a great quote. She says, Fate, silent, pitiless, bars the way. Fain would I question his imperious decree, for my heart is undisciplined and passionate, but my tongue will not utter the bitter, futile words that rise to my lips, and they fall back into my heart like unshed tears. Silence sits immense upon my soul, then comes hope with a smile and whispers, there is joy in self-forgetfulness. So I try to make the light in other people's eyes my sun, the music in others' ears my symphony, the smile on other lips my happiness. And she goes on to say, I thank God for my handicaps, for through them I have found myself, my work, and my God. See, God has a plan. And has a a purpose, you know, for us that only we can discover as we yield to God and not fight against God. The potter has in his mind what he wants to make out of this lump of clay, out of that lump of clay that you are. And and, and the clay itself, you know, we're pretty worthless But the clay has the capacity for infinite value according to the ability of the potter. I was watching a YouTube video the other day, and and it was a guy, and he had a potter's wheel, and he's making this, this bowl has like four lumps of clay. And he put one down on the wheel, and he's forming it, and he's making kind of this bowl thing, and he puts the lid on it, and he kind of fixes it, and he puts it over on the shelf over here, and he picks up another thing, and he he makes it look like a little bowl thing, and puts the thing on there, and he puts it over here, and then makes the third one. He's got four of them going. Now, one of them, he paints around the edges, and he paints the bottom, and you see him putting in the, in the what they call it, a kill or whatever, and, and heating it up, and, and, and then, and that's it. I don't know what it became. I mean, they didn't show the end of the video. That's the end of, I mean, it's like, so what did you make? I have no clue what you made. It's just all sitting there, you know. I didn't know. Kind of like the way we are sometimes. We don't know what God's doing sometimes, but we know he's a master potter, and he knows what he's doing. Because if the potter is capable, he can take a worthless lump of clay like you and me and make it into something of great worth and great value. And who can deny the ability of God? I mean, the, the master potter to, to take our lives, which are so common, yet make something uncommon out of us, to make something of great value and worth as he makes us that vessel that he can use. Again, God has in his mind that which he wants my life to be like, and I can only discover what that is while I, I yield myself to him. But woe to the man who strives with his maker. God will bring judgment upon the man who wins that strife. Because if you refuse God, if you refuse to submit your life to God, all that left, all that's left is judgment. So how foolish it is to fight with God. Now look, the Lord continues in verse 13. Back to speaking about Cyrus. He says, I have raised him up in righteousness, and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city and let my exiles go free. Not for price nor reward, says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord, the labor of Egypt and merchandise of Cush and of the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you. 
And they shall be yours. They shall walk behind you. They shall come over in chains. And they shall bow down to you. They will make supplication to you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other. There is no other God. So for Cyrus, God would say, I'm righteous, and I'm calling him to deliver you when it's time. In other words, what he does for you guys, I will consider righteous. And again, Cyrus would allow the Jewish captives to return to their homeland and rebuild Jerusalem without demanding any price or reward for them in return. And God here is pointing out that, that Cyrus's reward basically will be, you know, that Egypt, Cush, the Sabaeans, they're all going to be conquered eventually. They're all going to be coming behind, uh, you know, uh, the Persians here. Now, verse 15, we read, Truly you are God, who hide yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. They shall be ashamed and also disgraced, all of them. They shall go in in confusion together, who are makers of idols. But Israel shall be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed or disgraced forever and ever. So the pagan gods, the idols were, were you know, statues that you can look at. There's no pictures of our God. You know, you are God who hides yourself, Isaiah says. Now, why does it say that God hides himself in verse 15? Well, God hides himself only to those who don't want to see him. Plain and simple. Jeremiah 29, 13, the Lord says, And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Deuteronomy 4, 29, But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. Again, God hides himself only from those who don't want to see him. You want to see me, then, then, then you won't see me. But if you seek him, you will find him, for he loves you more than you'll ever know. Now, if you don't turn to the true and living God, Isaiah says, and you turn to some kind of idol worship, then when the Lord returns... Or you die and you stand before him, you'll be ashamed and disgraced, the Lord says. But, verse 17, Israel shall be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed or disgraced forever and ever. I love that. Israel is going to be saved with an everlasting salvation. God is not done with the Jewish people. He still has a plan for them. And, and we know the Bible teaches that they're going to come to a place in the last days where they'll recognize Jesus as the Messiah. It's an everlasting salvation he has for them. Israel will be saved, but not only Israel, all those who trust in the Lord and seek the Lord will be saved and not ashamed of His coming. And he goes on now, look at verse 18. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speaks righteousness. I declare things that are right. So here, God has, and, and He does even here, de- declares that He is the author of creation. We've established that. Back in Isaiah chapter 40, we've seen um, Him referred to as one who has created the stars, Isaiah 40, 26. Isaiah 40, 28, He's the creator of the ends of the earth. Isaiah 42, 5, it says, He's created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. But there's a, very, there's a very interesting statement made about the creation in verse 13, or rather verse 18. We see that it's the Lord who, he says, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. Now that's interesting because in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 we read, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. And yet here in verse 18 we read, God formed the earth and made it. Now, this gives rise to speculation. What, what's going on here? Some speculate that maybe between Genesis 1-1, one, one, 
when God created the heavens and the earth, and Genesis 1-2, when the earth was without form, some major stuff might have happened in between that time. And since we're not told uh, when the devil fell, maybe his rebellion happened during this gap. And so there are those who, who have this, what's called the, the gap theory. Many believe that, that God created the earth, but it was destroyed through Satan's rebellions and became formless. Then God started all over again, recreating the earth as described and putting animals and humans on it. Now, I have a problem with that. There's some, some uh, major theological problems with that, and I don't hold to that view. But there are some good teachers and, and theologians that do. Now, my thinking is that we have all we need to know through God's revelation to us through his word, and he hasn't mentioned a gap theory, so I don't buy into it. Now, it could be one of those, those topics that, you know, you say, wait until further information to decide, and that won't be till heaven, and at that point, what difference does it make? And so, it was Mark Twain who said, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me, it's the parts that I do understand. So the gap theory aside, what point is God making when he says that he did not create the earth to be formless? God is saying that he is the creator. And in spite of the fact that he's invisible, he has a plan and a purpose that he's not secretly told Israel. You know, find me in some place without form in some dark and, and, and an uninhabited place. Rather, he's spoken openly. He's spoken righteously, declaring what is right. None of it's hidden or secretive. Again, Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Now, he goes on in verse 20 and 21. He says, assemble yourselves and come, draw near together. You who have escaped from the nations, they have no knowledge. You carry the wood of their carved image and pray to a God that cannot save. Tell them, bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no other God besides me. A just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Over and over and over again we see the Lord saying that he alone is God. That there is no other. Who has spoken of Cyrus being raised up and defeating Babylon. Letting the Jews return home. No one but God. Look at verse 22 through 25. He says, look to me and be saved. All you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself. The word, word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return that it may, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. He shall say, surely the Lord, I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. And the Lord, all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. See, God is calling all people, not just Israel, to stop following after worthless idols and turn to him to be saved. Turn to the true living God. Look at the, the simplicity of salvation that God has for us. He says in verse 22, look to me and be saved. That's pretty simple. Just, just look to the Lord. Look to Him. Seek Him and you'll find Him. Seek Him and you'll be saved. Why? Because as you seek Him and you find Him, you realize, I'm a sinner. And I can't stand before a holy God. I need forgiveness. I need to repent. And we humble ourselves. But as you seek Him, we'll be saved. So first we must look to God. Then he tells us the result of looking to God, you will be saved. He doesn't say, you know, uh, seek me and, and, and you might be saved. No, he says, you will be saved. God wants us to know that we can have assurance of our salvation, that we can be absolutely know for sure that we are saved. And then God wants us to know that this gift is not just for the Jewish people. It's not just for certain people, but this gift of salvation is extended to all. He says, to all you, all you ends of the earth. So it goes to all 
the end of the earth. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now how can we know that what God says is true? Look at verse 23. He says, I have sworn by myself the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and it shall not return. Now think about this. I mean, if, if, if you want to stress the, the validity of your promise, I mean, you're going to pick up something of great value and you're going to swear by it. For example, oh, I swear on a Bible. You know, when you're a kid, you know, we would do that. You know, or, or you'd swear in your mother's grave. I swear in my mother's grave that I didn't take your lunch. You know, and you're, well, why would you do that? You know, but, you know, because what you're saying is, is, is that this is this oath. You're swearing in something great and valuable. You're saying this is an oath I'm taking. And if I'm not telling you the truth, if I'm lying, then my dead mother was a liar. I mean, that's what, what it's saying. Or the Bible isn't true. But here God is, is swearing by no one greater. God can't swear by no one greater because there's no one greater than God. He says, I have sworn by myself. Do you see what God was doing here? He's saying, I want to give my people a strong encouragement. I could swear by the stars or the moon that they're great. I could swear by the world or, or, or by my people Israel whom I love, the apple of my eye. I could swear by all the angels in heaven, by Gabriel and Michael, but none of these is great enough to give the level of encouragement and hope that I want my people to have. I want you to know these things are going to come true because I swear by myself, is what he says. I mean, that's only God. Since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Well, what does he swear? He says, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return that to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall take an oath. Where have we heard that before? We know that one day every knee will bow before Jesus and confess that he is Lord. You have God's word on it. Paul quotes the same verse in, in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, speaking of Jesus. Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul quotes it again in Romans, two places. Paul quotes this, Romans 14, 10 through 12, Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Romans 14, 10 through 12 says this, But why do you judge your brother, or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. So, either you bow before the Lord and confess, yes, Jesus is Lord, or you're going to bow before the Lord and say, oh, no, Jesus is Lord. But either way, you're going to bow your knee before the Lord and say, Jesus is Lord. And I hope we're all in the camp that says, yes, Jesus is Lord. Now, as we get to, I think we can go through chapter 46, and we'll do this kind of quick. When we get to chapter 46, we're going to see the idols of Babylon, and then Isaiah in chapter 47, next week we'll see the destruction of Babylon. But let's just take 46 tonight. Look at verse 1 of chapter 46. It says, Baal bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols were on the beast and on the cattle. Your carriages were heavily loaded, a burden to the weary beast. They stooped, they bowed down together. They could not deliver the burden, but they have, they have themselves gone into captivity. As I read this, it kind of makes me laugh. See, the Babylonians, they had, had many gods that they worshipped. But their chief god was Baal, and, which means lord or master, and Nebo, which means the lofty one. I mean, kind of a... a Wimpy name for God, Nebo, you know. And, and, and the people, especially the leaders, they would incorporate the names of these gods into their own names. For example, Nebuchadnezzar. 
N-E-B. You know, he's taking Nebo, the first part of his name, which means, may the lofty one protect our borders. And then Belshazzar, Bel, which means master protect the king. And again, God is speaking about these false gods of Babylon who can't help them. They can't speak, they can't hear, they can't, you know, do anything. And, and, and these same men, these leaders took the names of these gods that can't see or hear. Now, in contrast, the Lord says of his people, he says in verse 3, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been upheld by me from birth, who have been carried from the womb, even to your old age. I am he, even to gray hairs I will carry you, I have made and I will bear, even I will carry and will deliver you. He's now he turned to the children of Israel and he said, Listen, I've been with you the whole time. You didn't make me, I created you. I'm not like an idol. Now, their idols, you know, during the festivals and the victory parades, the Babylonians would have to bring these large idols out and, and pick them up and place them on a card, and, and then the cattle or beast of burden would pull them through the streets for the people to worship and bow down to it. Again, think about that. This God they were worshiping couldn't walk, but had to be carried. And they were so large and so heavy that it was a burden for these animals to carry them. But here God is saying, I will carry you. I will deliver you. Even in your old age and even to gray hairs, I will carry you. Man, that's great especially to know as I look at my hair and it's getting grayer and grayer. He goes on to verse 5. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? They lavish gold out of the bag and weigh silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith and, and he makes it a god. They prostrate themselves. Yes, they worship. They bear it on their shoulder. They carry it and set it in its place and it stands. From its place it shall not move. The one cries out to it, yet it cannot answer nor save him out of his trouble. Again, Idols, man, they've got to be carried around. You know, and if you want to bow down to the idol, you've got to first lift it up and put it on an altar to begin with. So what good is crying out to your God? It's not going to answer you, nor save you out of trouble. Here was the bottom line. It didn't matter how much the Babylonians worshipped these idols, they, they could not deliver the people from Cyrus and his Persian army. The Babylonians were going to go into captivity, and these gods could do nothing for them. Now the Lord goes on, look at verse 8. Remember this, and show yourselves, men, Recall to mind, O you transgressors, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, a man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it and it will, and I will also do it. I love this. I mean, we've looked at this many times when we look at prophecy, you know, that, that, that God alone is the one who declares the end from the beginning. He alone can do that. And God here is telling His people to think back and remember what He has said in this past and how those things have come to pass. Yeah, these idols are silent, and yet God keeps showing us that He alone is God and that, that he, again, He points out that He's fulfilled prophecy over and over again to prove His deity. And finally, He says in verses 12 and 13, Listen to me, you stubborn-hearted who are far from righteousness. I bring my righteousness near. It shall not be far off. My salvation shall not linger. And I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. I love that. God is going to accomplish everything that he has promised to do. And he's promised to bring near his righteousness. And the Lord here tells those who are stubborn, too stubborn to walk in righteousness, do you think that it's not going to happen? It will, it will. I'm bringing it soon. I think we could say the same thing about the Lord's return. Don't think it's not going to happen. It will happen, and it will happen very, very soon. Now, next we come to the destruction of Babylon in chapter 47. 
but we're also going to see the destruction of future Babylon. And that's going to be real interesting. And I'll come back next week and I'll let you know what, what that's going to talk about. Or you can read it ahead and, and try and figure it out for yourself. And then we'll, we'll talk about it next week. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this night tonight. Lord, thank you for uh, the fact that you are God. Lord, you are the, the, the master potter. Lord, you know what you want to make out of our lives. Lord, help us to be uh, uh, pliable, Lord. Help us to be in that place, Lord, where we don't fight against you, Lord, but we yield our spirit to you, Lord God. We know that you have what's best for us in mind, and Lord, it may not be what we want. We may want think this is what we need or this is what we want, Lord, but you have a plan and you have a purpose, and we just need to trust in you for that, Lord God. Lord, we thank you that your word says that you'll give us to the desires of our heart, Lord, but we Lord, we know that's only true as you give us those desires. As your desires become our desires, Lord, you'll give that to us. And so, Lord, we just pray, Lord, that you would do that work in our hearts and in our lives, that we might glorify you with our lives, Lord, that we might honor you and serve you, that the world would look on and see, Lord, that, that we are your servants and you are our God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'll stand and we'll do one last.